Hi, this is Damon Pistolka, host of the Faces of Business podcast, where we talk to interesting people about life and business. We cover their backgrounds, obstacles they've encountered, and find out what drives them. Along the way, our guests share nuggets you can use to drive your success. Reach me directly, D-A-M-O-N at ExitYourWay.us, or check out our website, ExitYourWay.us, for more information. I hope you enjoy our show. Hello, everyone. Welcome once again to the Faces of Business. I'm your host, Damon Pistolka, and I am really excited for our guest today. Today, I've got Harry Moser with the Reshoring Initiative. Welcome, Harry. I bet you say that about all the boys, Damon, but it's great to be here. <laughs> but man, I am excited because you talk about something that I think is a cool topic that people are really, really, I think, paying a little more attention to recently than they have in the past, or, or at least I hope they are. So, Harry, you you are the founder of the Reshoring Initiative, trying to move manufacturing work back into the United States. Uh, I'll briefly talk about that, but um, let's talk about your background first before we get in there, because we'll talk about the reshoring initiative and how you got in that. But tell us about how you got into manufacturing and a little bit more about that. So I uh, grew up in Elizabeth, New Jersey. Uh, the biggest thing in town was Singer Sewing Machine. And uh, my grandfather was a foreman there. My dad ran about a third of the factory. The factory in its day was the, the biggest factory in the world. Wow. 5,000 workers, two and a half million square feet. This is 1900 kind of time. And uh, I worked there summers in high school and college. And so I, I you know, from when I was 14 or 15, I worked in a factory. And uh, and my dad had that tradition. My grandfather had that. So, so it was wow. obvious that. I was going to go into into manufacturing. Yeah, yeah. So when you were that young, what what did you like manufacturing, or was it just a job? Well, like I say, the family had always done it, and and it, it was real. It had substance. Uh, you could you could see the end product. Yeah, um, good people to work with. You know, salt of the earth people in manufacturing. So it was a, it was a great, uh, great experience. I hear I was a 14, 15 year old kid working with these 50, 60 year old people that had been had been doing this all their life, and 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 were just wonderful people to work with. So I, you know, it, it made it made a lot of sense. Now, the, eventually, I actually, when I went away to college, I started as a chemical engineer, and yeah. and eventually switched over to mechanical and. Uh, but it, it, manufacturing was always more or less the plan. Yeah, yeah. So you went to MIT for your for your college, for your engineering college anyway, and you, you got a BS and then an MS in mechanical engineering, correct? Correct. Yep. Yeah. So, you know, MIT, prestigious school. Um, and what did, what did you really enjoy about school? <laughs> Coeds. <laughs> there you go. There you go. There you go. Uh, it was a great. I had a good high school background, so MIT was hard, but it wasn't, you know, impossibly hard. And uh, uh, I actually, I really liked thermodynamics of the really? mechanical engineering subject. 
I, I mean, I was good at everything, you know, yeah. sort of a more or less and mechanical, but in thermodynamics, for some reason, it just all clicked. And I was, I was a plus and I was just, just knocking them out and uh, heat transfer, but, but, but really uh, thermodynamics. So uh, I lived in a fraternity, yeah. moved, moved in before freshman year started and stayed there through graduate school. So I lived five years, never lived in a dorm one day. Okay. And, and, it was, and for, you know, for a, a book bookworm, you know, coming in from, you know, yeah. not having been especially socialized, so to speak, to, to be at the fraternity and the parties and the other people. And it was a very good, good background. It, it yeah. helped to make me much better at working with people and getting things done. You know? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's cool. I didn't have to say thermodynamics was not one of my favorite, favorite <laughs> subjects in, in college. I've got a mechanical engineering degree as well. I think mine was really when I got into internal combustion engines and, and that kind of stuff. And, and, and actually one of the most interesting classes I took was atomic physics, which I don't know why, but it really clicked with me. So, um, Got it's nice to talk to another engineer that actually knows what you're talking about when you talk about a thermodynamics class because <laughs> it's uh, it, it is a little different track in college that's for sure to do engineering, but uh, and, so and, and that's that's one of the problems. Most most American kids believe they're not good at math, they're not good at science, and as a result, I think something like three percent or six percent of U.S. degrees are in engineering. Yeah. And in China, 30% are in yeah. engineering. Yeah. And so so you, you got people over there willing to work for a lot less, willing to work really hard because they're still hungry. Mm -hmm. And 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 with a team 10 times as big as our team. Yeah. You know, that's that's pretty tough competition. Yeah, you're right. You're right. And I think you make a good point because um you know I, I think I think back to my kids and that my kids were they could have done engineering school, but they they chose not to because they they would say the very same words that came out of your mouth. They didn't think they were good enough at math and science, or they didn't like math and science. But I tell you, I think the the people that um, do foray into it and do it, um, they will find a very very rewarding career uh, ahead of them if they take the. You know, just seize the opportunity, and it, it it's not easy. I mean, I, this you and I both know that it takes work to get through engineering school, but the opportunities that it provides are are second to none, really. It, it, it took work to study Latin. <laughs> yeah, you're right. You're right. That's it too. That's it. And the career opportunities are a lot better in engineering. <laughs> yeah, that's that's true. That's true. That's that's for sure. Well, I want to pause for a second. Gail, hi. How are you doing today? Great seeing you here. Um, and, uh, Gail Robertson's a good supporter out of Canada. Gail is part of the Canadian Molding Association, and, uh, she does a lot of work with injection mold manufacturers in Canada. So, uh, that's, uh, interesting. That's where I started out in manufacturers in, in manufacturing is in molding. And I stayed in that for a number of years and I really enjoyed that. For, for whatever it's worth, I was the... I think 1998 SPE mold designer of the year. Really? Yeah. Even though I never designed a mold, but they, <laughs> they, they were, they didn't have anybody that was really appropriate. And I, and they were impressed by the work I'd done on uh, skilled workforce. Recruitment. Yeah. 
And so yeah. I said, yeah, let's, let's give it to Harry. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's talk about that. Cause you, you've done a lot of work in, in, in the skilled workforce improvement and, and t talk a little bit about why you, you kind of keyed in on that and, and, uh, and started helping well, people with that. Yeah. Uh, it, it ties eventually into the reshoring concept and that the, the Germans, for example, have incomes about the same as ours, maybe even a little higher. Yeah. And, and yet they have a trade surplus equal to 5% of their GDP, while we have a trade deficit equal to 3% of our GDP. So that difference of 8% for, for us would be $1.7 trillion a year, which would employ about 9 million manufacturing workers if we were as manufacturing intense as Germany is. And, wow. and I, ascribe, I ascribe a lot of that difference. Many, many experts would ascribe a lot of that difference to the apprenticeship system. Yeah. The, you know, Switzerland and Germany, very similar. I know Switzerland better, but about 60, that's 6-0% of the high school kids at the age of 16 go into an apprenticeship. They stay there. It's typically a four-year apprenticeship. When they, they get great academic training while they're in it, they get... Uh, incredible hands-on training, you know, a combination of the two. Um, yeah. I, I've taken tours to switch four different tours of U.S. apprenticeships, apprentices and shop owners to Switzerland to see the Swiss system. And these kids that you'd meet are, if you met them, you'd say, wow, these are really sharp college kids. And, you know, and, and they, they can talk about anything you want to talk about. And, and they could do it in typically in English, French, and German. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. And and they're on their way to becoming great tool makers or welders or precision machinists or you know automation builders or something like that. So and and because they come into the company at the age of sixteen, they they get the training. Most of them stay on in in the company. They know the product. They know the process. They know the other employees. They know the customers. They work their way up within the company. Some go on to get a university degree, engineering, management, so on. And typically, the the senior management of these, what they call the Mittelstadt, the 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 uh, mom and pop kind of you know twenty to five hundred people companies, typically the the senior management started as apprentices. Wow. Whereas in, in the U.S., as you get towards the higher side of that, you'd expect them to be MBAs or 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 some uh, something as uh, an accountant who brought into the company, you know, or something. These are people who work the way up really, and, and as a result, they're better throughout their career on average than our people. I I, I took a I took one of these apprentice tours to one of the biggest Swiss machine tool makers, not, not my company, different company. And, and the head of uh, applications engineering development you know, for the world, he said, when we develop the, the, this, say a five axis machine, when we develop the uh, process for Germany or Switzerland, we do it in one setup on one machine and, and get it done. But when we're doing it for the U.S., because on average, the, the programmers and the operators are not as skilled, we break it down into two setup, setups. 
Mm. So now the chances for error, the chances for mm-hmm. uh, inaccuracy, the, the, the productivity, because you don't put it on once and let it run sort of forever. You, you got to take it off and put it somewhere else. So, so, so the, the U.S. just it is not competitive overall. So I'm sure our best people are as good as their best people, but our average isn't as good as their average. And, yeah. And, and yet we're we've got to compete with them on the on the world market. I, I was at a, a good sized, maybe 100, 150 person U.S., very high precision, so something like Swiss turning. And um, and I, I said, whom do you have problems competing with? He said the Germans. You know, they can they can make the stuff as good or better than we can, and they can sell it for 10 or 15% less than we can sell it for. And and, and yet they're buying roughly the same equipment. Yeah. So to me, to me, the difference is is the skilled workforce that are you know programming and running the machines. So so so, so I've always put a, a high priority on for, for the country to get those people. But at the same time, and obviously for the company, because if the companies all had those people, the country would succeed. But for the worker, I, I, I'm, I'm very unhappy that our country does a horrible job of telling them about the opportunity. So yeah. as, as an example, back about eight years ago, the Department of Labor called me to Washington, D.C. to tell them how to get the workforce ready for the flood of work that was coming back from offshore. And yep. so we're in the Secretary of Labor's conference room, Harry, and six or seven of them. And they said, okay, you're, you're, what, do you, what do you have? And I said, okay. And I pulled up one of their websites. And I said, I, I thought you guys were responsible for us to have the workforce we needed. And they, specifically, you were responsible for the National Apprenticeship Program. They said, yeah. I said, well, here's this website. And it says, education pays. And, and it's a typical bar chart that shows income going up with number of degrees. No high school, high school, associate, you know. And, and I said, it's interesting. I look at that chart and nowhere on there do I see the income of people who've passed an apprenticeship. So guidance counselors, economists, mayors, parents all over the country, they're trying to decide what Johnny and Jill should do. And they're, then they're told that the, the only correlation is with number of degrees. And they never yeah. are told that an apprenticeship or, or a good stack of credentials actually produces on average an income just as good as the bachelor's degree does. And, yeah. and if the government isn't telling them, how do you expect them to find out? Because the, the guidance counselors aren't going to invent this out of, out of, out of nowhere. Right? So, and and they, they, they folded and they changed that website. They added some words about apprenticeship. And, but I, I was going on today and I still find lots of charts on DOL and Department of Education say the same thing. And so I'm I'm in the process of emailing a Deputy Assistant Secretary of Labor and, and offering my help to audit their websites and help them see get it right. <laughs> well, I, I mean, this is this is something and and we're gonna back up to just a minute before when we when we finish this this conversation because I want people to understand your experience too and where you're coming from when you talk about skilled workforce but this is something that i i i see i i i feel in our in our country we we've, we've missed is that you know going to college doesn't necessarily mean that this is the best opportunity for everyone right and that's kind of what it's been played off as and 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 then the people that don't go to college we we've lost that apprenticeship we've it just seems like we've lost it we've lost the fact that listen 
you can you can work and we're talking about manufacturing today or or you can go and, and go into an apprenticeship and be a plumber or an electrician or or these are good jobs these are good career decisions for somebody whereas and i know this is might be a good career decision for some people but working at domino's pizza and working in a manufacturing facility as an apprentice and and, and being able then to move on it's I would bet that they're going to be happier being the apprentice in the and working in the manufacturing facility for a long time. Certainly, ten ten years later, and certainly if they ten. if they take the career opportunities they have. You know, one piece of data that the the guidance counselors I'm sure never give them. It, it turns out guidance counselors' main job is to get the kids into the best college they can get into, because the high school is measured by the high school the colleges that the students go to. And so, uh, one piece of data one piece of data that they never give out is that. At any point in time, about 35% of all people who have a bachelor's degree are in a job that does not require a bachelor's degree. Yes. They're at Starbucks, they're at, you know, doing something like that. And, and, and some of them have gone back and become uh, plumbers and tool makers so they can make an income after yes. the, so they could pay off their college debt. Yes. <laughs> okay. Yes. And yet, I mean, if the kids were, if they had their nose rubbed in that 30% of you, if you go on to college are going to be in jobs that don't require a college degree. So instead of picking up a hundred thousand dollars in debt and four years, not making any money, why don't you start off with an apprenticeship? Make, I, I did a study about eight years ago. And I compared an English major to a toolmaker, and said, uh, and I looked at the at the income and cash flow starting yeah. at the age of eighteen, and the, the toolmaker starts apprentice starts making money, and the the English major pays money. Okay, and then I, I took half of the higher income that the toolmaker had, and put paid taxes with it, and the other half invested at seven percent per year, and at the age of forty nine. The toolmaker had a million dollars more net worth than the English major. Yeah, because yeah. income was always higher, and there wasn't that negative cash flow at the beginning. Yeah, the, you think the, think the guidance counselors are passing that out? No, <laughs> no, no. And I, I, as you look at it too, and when you think about it, this they they are being uh, measured by how how you know flashy the colleges that their kids go to. That's for sure. Well, we've got a couple real quick. We got some comments here from Kenneth. Hello, Kenneth. Thanks for thanks for getting in here. And he says, getting going to college doesn't guarantee you a job either. That is that is something that that's bothered me a lot in the in with uh, you know my kids are in their twenties and out of college or nearly out of college, and you know a lot of their friends have gone to college for degrees that you really wonder what, what, what they're going to use that for. And often they fall into that category that you said they, they're working in a job that doesn't require a college degree and they don't, it is just negative cash flow at the beginning. So, I've got this, I got this great cartoon that I often use in my presentations and it's, it's, a, it's a kitchen in a restaurant and this young kid, maybe 25 cigarette, long hair we're doing the dishes and the four four five other guys cleaning the floor doing whatever all of them looking sort of and 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 one of them says to the kid yeah uh, stop complaining uh, all of us 
have PhDs in English literature. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and it, I mean, it's sad but true. I mean, even years ago, my my uh, one of my brothers uh, did an MBA at Notre Dame, and he had gotten his undergraduate at a different school, a much smaller school, and he would he would lamented over the people that would pay the 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 price to go to Notre Dame and get an English degree or a degree that was, was, you know, you knew you were going to go out and not really get a high paying job with it. So it, it is, it is uh, something I definitely need to need to talk about. And um, I, I sure, I sure appreciate you sharing that information with us on the skill of manufacturing, but let's back up just for a moment because we're sitting here talking about, we kind of got off on the skill of manufacturing, but you've got a, you've got a, a, a pretty solid viewpoint uh, to be talking about these things because you graduated from MIT in mechanical engineering and then you you started in the G manufacturing management program and then you know tell us about your your career because I mean you've I, I've got a few of them written down here but kind of tell us about your career because I think it'd be helpful for people to understand that because your experience gives you real world uh, background to talk about these subjects. You know, so it's been a while. <laughs> I hope I can remember all of it. The uh, so it started in the GE Manufacturing Management Program at Large Steam Turbine Generator in Schenectady, sort of the, the beginning of GE, you might say. And then yeah. uh, Nuclear Power out in San Jose. Yeah. And only stayed a year and a half and left and came back and worked at MIT industrial liaison office, exchanging technology, economic science, you know, what have you, with big companies around the world. It was great, yeah. formative kind of thing. Uh, yeah. Left that and uh, became uh, uh, technical director and then marketing director for uh, a Dizomatic yeah. uh, molding machine, big automated molding equipment for foundries. Yeah. Uh, went from, and I, I hope I get this right in order, uh, went from there to uh, what was then called Acme Cleveland, which owned yeah. National Acme and uh, Cleveland Twist Drill, two great U.S. industrial companies, both of which Cleveland is a brand still, but no, not a factory, not a yeah. big factory anymore. And National Acme just completely gone yeah. and uh, left there, became president of Roto Finish, vibratory finishing machinery, nice yeah. little company, good product. Uh, and then my my peak of my career, uh, Ch Charmé, uh, EDM machine. At that yeah. time, EDM and uh, and eventually also high-speed milling and laser and so on. But there yeah. was a, it was a wonderful job. I, when I came, the company was in total disarray when I came in and probably couldn't find anybody else to take it. I don't know. <laughs> and, 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 and we were like number seven or eight in the North American industry. Yeah. And within about six years, we were number one, you know, yeah. and, and, and to take it from, you know, way down here to way up now, new products from corporate, wonderful yeah. team, great people. But but what a what a wonderful collection of of employees, of distributors, of customers. The, the, the thing I think I did best, I traveled probably a third of the time uh, going to see customers and, and you know, what are we doing right? What are we doing wrong? Yeah, what should yeah. we do differently? Et cetera, et cetera. And then I come back and work with our team and figure out. How, and, and eventually we, we identified all, all the things we should be doing. Answering the phone, uh, having the spare parts available, 
having service engineers available to go out and fix, you know, training methods, et cetera. And then we started to measure all those things and post them all. Each department had metrics, you know, KPIs. And one of my best days, we, we, one of our competitor, uh, competitors, we picked up their distributor in Michigan and, and, uh, uh, Bob Palmer and, and he came in and I said, Bob, let me give you the tour. And he said, and he said, because uh, I, I always took customers, prospects around for the tour. And he said, uh, Harry, I've heard all about the tour. He said, what do you mean? Well, when we were selling against you, the, the, the prospective customers told me how wonderful the tour was and how Charmy does everything right. And we had nothing to answer. And <laughs> I'm, I'm glad to be on your side now. I said, well, that feels good. <laughs> that does. That's so great. That's so great. Well, I mean, it, it, what you did at Char- Charmy is, is really good, basic business practice. It's, it's listen to your customers let them tell you what you really need to change and then make sure you're doing it right. So when I, a lot of the other machine tool company presidents would go to the AMT meetings, wonderful thing to do, great association, et cetera. And I I went to the NTMA meetings, the national tooling and machining association meetings where all my customers were. So I'd be there with a hundred of these shop owners and uh, no other machine tool salesman anywhere in sight, you know. So, so one yeah. time, one time, I'm I'm talking to a, a, a new member, and and uh, another guy, Dwayne Schreiber, comes over, and Dwayne says to to Bill, Bill, don't let Harry take you to dinner. And Bill says, hey, Harry and Joe are going to take me out and, and Sue out to dinner. Well, he's a nice enough guy. He's going to pay. You know what's wrong? And Dwayne said, well, about three years ago, Harry took uh, Shirley and me to dinner. And since then, I bought $3 million worth of this machine. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, it is. It, it, the, I mean, it's it's the way it's, it's building the relationships and having a good product. I mean, that's what it is. Doing the right things and, and building relationships is how you build businesses. Yeah. And I and I, I tell people, you know, you know me, if, if my team isn't so person performing if you're not if you can't get the service you can't get the spare part you can't get you know something you know, try the system but eventually call me yeah and so so they they knew the president and at these other companies they typically didn't know the president so they had a higher feeling of confidence now you know sometimes did i have to push bill in front of jim you know because i had the relationship with bill you know and was that fair to jim no, I don't know. I don't know, but but it, overall, it worked. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no doubt. So your background in running and being in and running these different businesses, you got to see. I mean, you think about from turbines to nuclear energy to you know being a knowledge base thing in MIT, and then into these the manufacturing companies manufacturing these end products and sometimes very technical end products. Yeah. You've seen the importance of a skilled workforce and and good good apprenticeship or training programs for the employees and the and how that that really can affect a business. So that's exactly. that's why I wanted to cover it. So as we're talking about the skilled workforce and how that how that uh, plays into our current state in the United States of, of manufacturing, um, you come from a meeting of uh, a position of knowing and living it. 
so, 50 years of living it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, but I bet there's not too many of those years that you would, you would say, ah, I could get, I could leave that. No, actually there were maybe two years or three years out of 50 that I was not delighted yeah, you know, yeah. All, all the rest of the years they said wow this is as good as it gets this is yeah wonderful. good <laughs> that, that's awesome that's awesome so you've got this this career you got this stellar career going on and you're and you're getting getting near the end and you're you're like well what am i going to do so you founded the reshoring initiative what what I mean, what epitome did you have that you were going to try to take this that, that made you just decide, I am going to take this on? Was that actually an epiphany? Yeah, I, I just, yeah, epiphany. <laughs> well, I'm saying the wrong words because I just, I'm going for it, but epiphany, yeah. What, 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 what did you, what just, what just. Well, I, I, meant, I mentioned Singer. And yeah. uh, I, I drove past the old Singer plant in Elizabeth, which again was a Colossus in its day. Yeah. And, Nothing is made there anymore. As far as I can tell, nothing is made of Singer anywhere in the country. Everything imported, as far as I can tell. Yeah. And, and during my career, <clears throat> selling machine tools, selling foundry equipment, company after company, industry after industry that I had targeted to sell to, there shoe machinery makers, textile machinery makers, the machine tool companies, foundry equipment companies, competitors disappeared. They just get wiped out. The, the dollar would go up like in 1985 yeah. and another third of the industry would disappear because you couldn't possibly compete with Japan and Germany because your costs were just so high because of the dollar having gone, yeah. gone up so much. And, and, and so I said, this is, this is, not acceptable, you know. Yeah, and then uh, some, somebody has to do something about that, and and so I was retiring from uh, Charmé, George Fisher, and uh, and I, I had I felt I was the right guy to do it. I, I I knew imports and exports. I knew manufacturing, economics, commerce. Uh, I'd, I'd written and and presented a lot, so I had contacts throughout the industry and in the media. Yeah. And I said, well, and I, I had enough money that I didn't have to go out and get another job. So I said, let's uh, let, let's do something good for the country. Yeah. So I still it kind of blows me away because where do you start? <laughs> where do you start with something like this? I mean, well, in, initial the first the first thing I really almost the first thing I did was to write the. TCO estimator, so total yep. cost of ownership estimator, which is probably what we're best known for. And and it's think of it as a spreadsheet, and and a company that is trying to decide: should I offshore? Should I reshore? Should I source to offshore? Source domestically? They you start with the FOB or X Works price, so the factory price in in the U.S. and the other source, and then it, it helps you add in duty freight packaging, carrying cost of inventory, risk of stocking out, intellectual property risk, 29 different things like that. And, and when you get done with that, uh, when you start out, you say, uh, you know, China, 20, 30% lower than the U.S., of course, China. But when yeah. you've added all this stuff in, it, it's either the, the U.S. wins or maybe it, it gets down from 30% difference, maybe to a 5% difference. And then you say, huh. 
if we put some, some new equipment in, we did a little lean, we did a little training, we got the workforce really engaged, we can knock 5% out of the cost. Whereas if you said, can we knock 30% yeah. out of material uh, burden and labor? Well, that, unless you're horrible to start with, it's not going to happen. Okay. Yeah. So, so it either, either when you, so you do this TCO and it gets you, gets you down to, 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 you know, to where it's feasible. And so show, show you the power of that. I took the first 180 cases of China versus the U.S., where the user had done the calculation with, with the spreadsheet. And um, of the 180 cases, 8% of the time, the U.S. had the lowest price. But 32%, we had the lowest total cost. And if there happened to be a Trump 15% tariff, 46% of the time the U.S. won. So, so just by doing the math correctly and recognizing everything, instead of just looking at the X-Works price, yeah, you go from 8% to maybe 46%. And that's a, so. So we say that uh, for, for most companies, most products, something like 20 or 30% of what they import, they would bring back if they did the math correctly. And, okay. and here's the TCO estimator on our website free. You sign up, you sign in, you use it. There's examples, there's explanations, there's you know, formulas. So you can see the formulas. You know, we're not making it up somehow behind, behind the curtain. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and people do it. And, and uh, yeah, not all of them, but some of them decide to, to, to bring the work back. Well, I think, I think what you're – this – I'm glad we got into this because, I've you know, obviously we've uh, – I've seen this before and looking at your, your TCO as uh, total cost of ownership estimator for, for manufacturers. I think most manufacturers don't really even consider the cost of that extra inventory and the, and the, the risks and the other things into it. They're just looking at, you know, cost five bucks, cost four bucks, three bucks, whatever. And that's how they make the decision. Survey says that's what they do. That's that about 60, 60% of them, look basically just at the price yeah and uh and, and now is there a trend towards tco i sure hope so i've been doing this for 10 years yeah <laughs> so, so it's and and uh, thomas thomas net just did a survey and asked companies uh, how do you decide where to source and they said tco you know that, that was the the biggest not huge but but the first yeah. number one choice i felt pretty good um but there's still uh, i had a a big aerospace company, and this is maybe seven, eight years ago. And I was there to present at a ISM meeting, something like that. And I'm sitting next to supply chain manager of a big aerospace company. And I said, Bill, how, how do you how do you decide? He said, price. I said, yeah, you can't. He said, you're, you're a big company. This is multi, multi-billion. And yeah. he said, well, he said, well, here's this housing. And he goes like this. I'm thinking 500 pounds. And he said, we, we cast it here. We air freight it to China to be machined. We air freight it back here to be plated. We air freight it back to China to be machined again, back here to assemble it into the end product. Yeah. And when we make the decision to do this instead of doing it all here, we only look at the price for the machining and the component and whatever. And we do not include the air freight. We do not include the carrying cost of inventory or the paperwork or the delay or anything else in making the decision. Really? <laughs> Yeah. So I said, yeah, you know, and this is this is one of the ten or twenty biggest companies in the country. That's yeah. amazing. So, so if they're that bad, were at least that bad, then you have to assume there's t- you know, thousands of others that are basically doing the same thing. Yeah, yeah. 
Because it is, you know, I've been involved in it before. Where we've had, we've had, you know, making the decision on onshore, offshore, how you're going to do it. And I've been fortunate enough in, in most of those situations, we did look at the total cost of ownership. And mm -hmm. when you start to do that, it is like you said, you look at it and it's a 30% cost differential or whatever, uh, uh, offshoring it. But when you start to look at the inventory costs and, and, you know, being able to react to, to demand changes or, or things like that and how much you have to commit to if you're if you're starting out with a new product line or, or something like mm -hmm. that it really that cost gap shrinks pretty fast yeah so as, as my, my favorite example there's a uh, EMS company to make printed circuit boards more mm -hmm. Mori Corp outside Chicago and uh, they came to me about five years ago, the VP sales, he said, Harry, we're about to lose a big order. Can you help us? I said, okay, what is it? He said, well, Chinese competitor offering a lower price. And so I helped Tony do the uh, TCO calculation and he took it to the customer, showed the customer that even though Maury's price was higher, its TCO was lower. And yeah. I got a letter from Tony saying that was the key to winning a 60, that's six zero million dollar order. Yeah. So for all the, all the listeners out there, if, if you're fighting against imports for some kind of business or, or, or trying to make the decision on your own part for your own company, you uh, use the TCO estimator, contact me, ask for help. You know, my, my mission is to, is to bring 5 million manufacturing jobs back. You know, we, we count that we've brought back that 5 million have come back, not, not all because of us, but 5 million, yeah. have come, 1 million have come back out of the 5 million. I need another four. So, this time for the phone to start ringing. Yeah. <laughs> Let me help yeah. You. Well, that's, that's like, you bring up a great point though, for suppliers. If you're, if you're, you know, if you're supplying something to somebody and you know, you're in competition with an offshore manufacturer for those components of those products, that is a way for you to really differentiate yourself a from the offshore, but other competitors, even in the United States, if you came in and, and were intelligently talked about the total cost of ownership. Yeah, I, I, we find a lot of recently, the last year or two, a lot of contract manufacturers and other small OEMs are starting to put on their website something like thinking of reshoring, tired of uh, long deliveries and quality issues, tired of paying in advance of shipment, et cetera. Oh, you know, yeah. Yeah. Here's here's what our company is doing to help you, and and often they'll you know link them to our website to see things. But, yeah. But increasingly, companies are, are are being aggressively going forward to to make the make the reshoring pitch to their to their customers. Yeah. Another, yeah. another thing we offer, um, if the company is not having a lot of such opportunities, but knows that there's a lot being imported, so if there's a uh, if, if, if a company makes widgets, you know, whatever this is, it could, could be contract manufacturer, could be their own pump or motor or something. Yeah? Mm -hmm. um, we have the import substitution program and reshoring is substituting domestic for imports. Mm -hmm. And so the, the company fills out a form, identifies the product that they're really good at making. And then we tell them, we train them on using TCO as a sales tool. And we tell them who the biggest importers are of the product they're good at making what tonnage they're bringing in, some idea of what they're paying for it, whom they're buying it from offshore. And then the, the, the widget company uses the TCO argument to go to that importer to convince them to buy from 
the TC, the widget company instead. Okay. So, so in, in effect, we give them the, the leads and the tool <laughs> yeah. to, to go out and get the business. You know, so yeah. Yeah, because your your interests are aligned. You're trying to get more work into ban in manufacturing in the United States, and they want more work for their businesses. And working together, only it's it's a smart thing to do, and and good for the country at the same time. And good for the country, and, yeah. And another thing, going back to the skilled workforce, just to tie that back in again, uh, if you ask kids and guidance counselors, you know, why why don't why shouldn't Bill go become a toolmaker or welder? Well, you know, industry, you know, we had the factory in town and it got shut down and everybody was unemployed and opioids. And, you know, it's been a, a, yeah. you know, a, an up and down industry. It hasn't been something stable. So so the, the, the single best way to overcome that argument is in a given community or state to document all the cases of reshoring, to let the guidance counselor and the parents and the kids see, huh, that's interesting. Work's coming back from China. 46% of the reshoring is from China. So work, work isn't going to China anymore. It's coming back from China. Yes, Susie, you want to become a welder? Probably that's really a good idea now. Why don't you become a yeah. welder? Yeah. And it, it is happening more and more because as, as the popularity of this ramped up, uh, you know, the cost of wages and cost of manufacturing has gone up around the world. And it, it's, 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 especially China. Especially China. Especially yeah. China. 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 For, for about 20 years, China averaged 10 to 15 percent annual wage increases, uh, driven significantly by the fact that they had the, the one child policy, mm -hmm. uh, which cut that cohort of people uh, who I think 40 years old and less, which is your solid you know, the center of your, your working group, uh, cut it in half. Instead of having two kids or three kids, they had one kid. And so their, their workforce is dropping it. 3.4 million per year, and the demand for labor has been going up at six or seven percent per year. Mm -hmm. So the so the price of labor goes up, and hey, that's great for them. They're middle class now, and it's good for us because now they're not so damn competitive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's 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 really noticeable now in the in the past projects. I mean, it was been it's been a number of years now since I've been doing anything with offshore manufacturing, but even five years ago, six years ago, seven years ago, I think it was, you know, it, it was, the gap was narrowing. You, I mean, it really has to be a special kind of product for it to, when you look at total cost of ownership to, to make yeah. the sense. The, the counterbalancing thing, however, is that U S productivity, manufacturing productivity has increased an average of 1% per year for the last 12 years. Wow. Okay. Chinese productivity has increased an average of six or seven percent per year over that time period. Wow. So there, so maybe half of that wage increase is eaten up by the productivity increase. So what you see over there with the trillions of dollars we've spent buying stuff from there, they've built these new factories with the newest equipment and the most robots, and 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 because they they see shortages of their workforce, they're automating mm -hmm. like hell. And yeah. And our factories too often are 50 years old and, and you still see bridge ports and you know, whatever yeah. in them and, and not enough robots and not enough uh, uh, loading, you know, automatic loading and so on. So, so uh, you know, our, whereas the Germans, they, they've continued to invest. So we need to be, we, I always say we need to be trained and do investment like the Germans and, and work as hard and aggressively as the Chinese, 
<laughs> and and yeah. if we do that, we're going to be way back on top. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's just, it's, it's mesmerizing almost listen to you because you, you know, this information so well. And I, I know the people that are listening, we've got a bunch more comments that I haven't put on the screen that are great comments. And thanks, uh, Gail and Kenneth for Kenny and others that are, they're commenting. Um, because you know, this is really important stuff for manufacturers. This is important stuff for, for people that are looking to get into the job market. I mean, because there are, there are opportunities in manufacturing, there are going to continue to be opportunities in manufacturing. And I think as long as we um, have people who are thinking about it globally and really understanding what the long-term um, goals and plans should be for, for business to be successful, you really have to, you have to look at this business differently and not, not as we talked about earlier, just a, you know, how much is that, how much is it costing and, and uh, um, uh, on a piece price basis, like the example you gave of the, the air, aerospace part moving around, but really look at this total cost of ownership and then figure out how can we get better? Because if we, if we do that productivity increase, that little bit of difference here or there, we can make it as competitive as anywhere. Yeah. And, yeah, well, one other thing to think about is, is risk. And there's the Suez Canal risk. There's the COVID risk. You know, things yeah. that mess you up for a couple of months and so on. But there's I've got a, a friend over there, a top sinologist, so a, so a China expert, uh, Dr. Eamon McKinney. He's written a bunch, bunch of stuff. Anybody can find him. And for, for about the last six months to a year, he's been convinced that the Chinese are going to decouple from the U.S. That because they're, they're so pissed off because of Trump, because of Taiwan, Hong Kong, the Uyghurs, uh, you know, trade trade war, you know, all this stuff, everything that they, they think that we've done to persecute them to South China Sea and so on. And, and that they are going to, at some point in time, announce that China will not ship anything to the U.S. They will completely cut us off, suffer all the contracts, you know, ship to anybody else, as long as somebody else doesn't cross ship to the U.S. And can you imagine us now with the you know, 400 billion yeah. or whatever it is that we're, that we're buying from China a year? And in many cases, they're the only source yeah. of the product in the world that we can get it from. And 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 us like carbide and uh, rare earth minerals and, you know, medical stuff. And if they just came out and said, you're, you're done. We're never going to ship you anything again. You're on your own. You know, suck it up. We'd be devastated. Now, if that had happened 15 years ago, when they needed us to develop their economy, they needed our trillions of dollars of you know consumer expenditures. It would have just devastated them. But now yeah. we've allowed our our manufacturing to hollow out so much, and we're so specifically dependent on them. So, so I I, I think. That, you know, what's the probability? I don't know if it's one percent or it's five percent or it's ten percent, but if it's if it's measurable, anything like one, five, ten percent, then companies should look at that and say we'd be out of business, and our country would be devastated. You know, in our own interest and in our national the obligation, patriotism to the country, it's at least worth doing the math and seeing if we could bring the work back now and be more profitable by doing so. <laughs> well, and you, you make a great point because look at what we're living with today. 
I mean today. Now, I don't mean today and last month. Just look at today. You know, I've got I've got friends of mine that are running factories. One of them they do they do uh, truck upfitting. They build for just about every truck that you see pushing snow or doing something for a, a government. They've probably had something to do with it, and they're getting trucks delivered that have no window controls, wiring harnesses not on. Well, and this is this is a lot of this is happening because of supply chain disruption that happened from COVID. Now that's just COVID. That's this is a different thing, and it's reacting and all those kind of things. But when you look at that, a lot of and a lot of that is due to the to the offshore uh, interruptions. But when you look at that and you just think of these examples, and we saw how how um, I don't know weak isn't the right word, but how dependent are are we are. Uh, dependent our medical products were on the <laughs> supply chain coming from China. And we've leaned out the supply because some people know the overall cost. We've leaned out the supply chain so much and then had it coming from offshore that lean when that was interrupted for not very long, we were left to truly scramble to try to figure out how to cover a short term kind of problem like that. I can only, I can't even fathom what would happen if, the Chinese imports stopped for three months. Oh, I mean, I mean, penicillin. Oh yeah, and yeah. Masks and gowns and gloves and yeah, yeah. Uh, mineral. You know, like I, I have this theory, and it could be entirely wrong, but I have this theory that 15, 20 years ago, China and Russia got together, and and uh, the Russians continued to build up their military, and the Chinese task was to soften the U.S. economically. You know, to, to undermine our manufacturing so we couldn't could not maintain our, our military uh, capabilities and so that our budget deficit would would boom, you know, huge, yeah. hugely increase, which means we wouldn't have the money to pay for the military. And so you'd have a, a an economically and militarily weakened U.S. faced by China and Russia. Did, did they ever agree to that or not? I don't know. But it sure seems similar to what you actually see having happened. Because one interesting thing, the Chinese trade surplus with the U.S. is approximately equal to their trade surplus with the world. So all the rest of the world, they're roughly in, in balance, in, in aggregate. And in mm -hmm. the U.S., they have this huge trade surplus. So, so you look at that and say, looks to me like they're targeting the U.S. and they're preferentially helping their countries ship to the U.S., more so than to Germany or Italy or you know, anywhere mm -hmm. else in the world. So, yeah, <laughs> you don't you don't know, but but it, it but it is you know, and reshoring these jobs to the U.S. or, or even even if you're if you're not going to fully reshore jobs, at least have part of your supply chain dependent. You know, getting product from a from a local resource or or a. a research within the United States, because then you're not down for good and you're yeah, not you, you, in the water. You got a chance to come back. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you got a chance so, to do that. So, so, you know, we, some people are talking about China plus one strategies, you know, you continue to get, you know, most of it from China, get, get some from India, Turkey, yeah. you know, so hey, 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 okay. But what are the costs of having two sets of tooling, keeping them consistent, keeping the quality, keep, keeping everything working in comparison to a, a maybe a higher labor cost here, but having one source 
five miles from your assembly plant and you, you do all that math and you put it all together in many of the cases the u.s is going to turn out to be the right choice yeah. but when you I, i've got a, my, my neighbor up here in maine is jim womack the, the lean guru yeah and, yeah okay and he talks about lean shoring he says when you bring it back don't put it in the same old factory with the same old equipment, with the same people and the same bad habits. Put it, put it, put it with new equipment, preferably a new factory. Uh, train the people. Uh, get the lean flow right so you're doing it, you know, as efficiently as you can. Yeah. And really train the people. And 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 when you do that, you're going to find that an awful lot of what you bring back can be done economically here. So you so you, you can't just do it the same old way. You have to do it better. Because they're yeah. doing it better over there all the time, so we have to do it better. Yeah, yeah, that's that's for sure, and that's a great point. I think, um, you know, we can't continue to do things the way that we have, and and obviously expect to get you know better results. We have to keep keep innovating and doing what we need to do to be be better at it. And and this means where we where we source, how we do things, and, and everything to look at that total cost of. Of ownership and get that to be competitive with the rest of the world. Yeah, so yeah. We, we work a lot with the uh, the MEPs, manufacturing extension partnerships. Yep. So there's some there's one in every state, and, yeah. and so, some of them offer our programs like the import substitution program to their uh, constituent uh, client companies in in the state. So so if 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 you like what I described, this import substitution program, either contact me or or ask your local MEP if they'd be willing to uh, get involved. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's cool. That's cool. Because the MEPs, I, I think they're the MEPs are some of the best kept secrets in the United States because most people don't even know about them and they could use a lot of their resources if they just knew they were there. So that's, that's good that you guys are working on. So uh, be before I forget, what is your website address for the reshoring initiative? So people can, Make sure to do that and get that. www.reshorenow.org. Okay. Okay. Reshorenow.org. Reshorenow.org. You look up Reshoring Initiative, you'll, you'll find us anyway. Okay. Reshorenow.org. And uh, if you if I can be of help, it's harry.moser at reshorenow.org. Okay. <laughs> so just email me and say, Harry, I heard you with Damon. You're crazy. Yeah. Oh, okay. Or Harry, I've got, I, I've got an opportunity. I did reshore. I want to tell you about our success and, and I'll, make yeah. you, I'll make you famous or, or uh, we have an opportunity to reshore. We need your help. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that, that's a great point. So if you, if someone's listening and they want to look at reshoring, need help reshoring, you're a contract manufacturer, you're trying to get more, some business back or you're competing against an offshore resource. The reshoring initiative is uh, a great place to, to start and, and Harry can help you there. And again, it's reshorenow.org. And before we get off, you know, what, what are some of the, the key things that you think are going to hit us as manufacturers in the United States in the next few years. You want the good things or the bad things? Let's start with the bad things because I know the good things are going to be good. At the risk of being political, um, I, I'm, I'm not in favor of a higher corporate income, income tax rate yeah. because that's, that, that reduces the after-tax return on investment of having a factory in the U.S. Yeah. I think that that's that's a negative. Uh, the, the president is pushing 
he keeps saying we need you know millions more good union jobs in the United States. <laughs> and, you know, in, in, there, there are a few unions that have been very proactive and yep. lean with their companies. You know, some of them have been great, but, but the, the overall history is, is not uh, consistent with increasing competitiveness. Mm-hmm. And, and so, so, uh, you know, a mandate for more unions is not c- consistent with bringing manufacturing jobs back to the U S so in my opinion, I'd love to, I'd love to have the unions prove me wrong. But and yeah. I, I've, I've worked with two, two or three of them in the past. I, I'm happy to work with them again uh, to help them convince their companies to reshore and bring the work back so they'll have more jobs. So happy, yeah. happy to work with them. Um, uh, minimum wage, you know, no, everybody's paying above the minimum wage now anyway, so it's almost irrelevant. Yeah. But 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 it, I'm afraid if that happens, someone's going to want to raise it to $25 an hour. And, and there's some point there where it, it does raise our costs too much. And it, um, it, it it used to be you had to go if you wanted to get ahead you had to go into an apprenticeship or you had to go into manufacturing instead of Starbucks. But if you can make twenty five dollars at Starbucks, then why would you why would you yeah. bother? Um, J- Janet uh, Treasurer Treasurer Yellen keeps talking about uh, wanting a strong dollar, and and one of the biggest problems we've had in the past has been that the dollar is consistently overvalued by twenty or thirty percent which is what is the driving factor in our trade deficit. So, so I, I think I'd happy have more happily hear her say, I want a dollar that's stable at a lower level. <laughs> yeah. You know, but she's, she's afraid to say that because the currency markets and so on. Yeah. But, yeah. but it's clearly, clearly the right thing to do if you want to bring the jobs back because companies, if, if the companies see 30 and 40% price differences, you know they're they're not going to listen to yeah. me. They're going to listen to the accountant, and and they're going to go and buy it cheap. And yeah. and so it makes makes my job and Damon's job harder by keeping the dollar where it is. So those are the bad things. Some of the good things. Uh, uh, I like the emphasis on the supply chain, uh, the, uh, the willingness to uh, tax people for offshoring and, and reward them for reshoring. Uh, one concern I have though. Like a, a lot of the emphasis recently has been on, for example, uh, chips. And there's yeah. talks of tens of billions of dollars invested in the chip factory. I, I think you have to do it because if you fall too far behind in that, you're, you're, you're history. You're, you're, you yeah. have a chance. Uh, but right now, we're at risk of being dependent on Taiwan and China to get our chips. Yeah. And if, if we don't get the dollar down, and bring back the production of cell phones and computers and servers and infotainment systems on cars and all this kind of stuff like you were talking about. If we don't bring that back here, then and we and we build five or six new chip foundries, and they have all this extra output that's coming out, then we're going to have to sell them to China to use yeah. <laughs> to, to make those products that we then buy back. So instead of being dependent on China for chips, we're going to be dependent on China for a market for our chips. Yeah. And therefore, I think I think doing the chip foundries is the right thing to do. But at the same time, we should get the dollar down so that the production of the end product comes back. So there'll be a market here for the chips that we make. Well, and it's again, it's. It is to to help remove the remove some of the risk in our in our supply chains. I mean, it, it when you think about the the risk that 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 induces, it's 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 pretty scary, actually. You know, combination of China and Taiwan together. Yeah, because China's committed to taking back Taiwan, 
And if they take it back, then I don't know, whatever it is, 60, 70 percent of the chips are being made in, yeah. in China. You know? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, this I tell you what, Harry, this has been such a great conversation with you because <laughs> it is it is one of these things where when I'm looking at we're about at an hour now and we, we probably should 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 wind it up. But I, I sometime I like to come back and talk about some of these things in specific. But I just want to let everyone know. Today's guest, we got Harry Mosier from the Reshoring Initiative, reshorenow.org. And it's harry.moser at reshorenow.org. If you want to talk about reshoring, total cost of ownership, and other things like that. Um, thank you so much, Harry. That, I don't know how else to say. It is it's such a pleasure to see you. We've been on a couple of shows like this, and, and I just I enjoy it every time because you are a wealth of knowledge around this. You understand this at a at least a national and more of a global level than just about anybody that I talk to. And it's it's refreshing to to be talking to you right now. So thanks so much for being here today. Thanks, David. And thanks to everybody who's out there. You bet. We'll be back again on Thursday with another guest on the Faces of Business. But thanks so much today to Harry. And remember, once again, I'm going to say it again, the Reshoring Initiative, reshorenow.org or harry.moser at reshorenow.org. And you can get some questions answered about how you can reshore some of your manufacturing jobs in the United States. Thanks a lot, everyone. <laughs> Bye. Bye.